There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. In a previous episode of Beyond Madness, we discussed the topic of assisted dying, where we looked at a growing international trend towards assisting patients with incurable illness whose condition was not amenable to meaningful relief, such that their lives were, in their opinion, not worth living and from which they sought intervention to bring an end to their lives. One of the arguments against legalizing assisted dying in South Africa was that patients had access to palliative care. On today's episode of Beyond Madness, which is the penultimate episode before we take a production break to reflect and consider future episodes, we're going to explore the specialized field of palliative care, which appears to be more about assistance with dying. Hence, the title of today's episode is Palliative Care Assistance with Dying. And joining me to discuss the topic, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Julia Riley, who for her sins was a classmate of mine at medical school, and Professor Paul Wong. Julia is a medical doctor who graduated at the University of the Witwatersrand before heading to the UK, where she ultimately qualified as a specialist in palliative care, palliative care physician. She currently works for NHS England, developing digital programs for dying patients. That may require some uh, explanation, but she is a visiting professor at Imperial College London. But ultimately, in my opinion, Julia is nothing if not a clinician, having spent 20 years at the Royal Marsden in London working with cancer patients. Paul is a Canadian psychologist, a professor emeritus of Trent University and Trinity Western University. He's recognized as a pioneer in the existential positive psychology of suffering. He has made important contributions to the quest for meaning, self-transcendence, death acceptance, successful aging, existential suffering, and palliative care. Paul is also a prolific writer, he has also been a pastor. And if you want to access Paul's writings, drpaulwong.com is his website. So, Julia and Paul, after the introductions, just to say I feel very privileged to have uh, both of you as my guests today. A truly international conversation in prospect on a topic, I think, of global significance in a world where we see aging as an issue impacting societies where suffering and death are feared. And where in spite of technological advances, medicine has its limits. Death is the inevitable reality for uh, each one of us. And yet, even when people accept that and live each day meaningfully, one still hears a common and understandable refrain about not wanting to suffer. For some, life ends peacefully, with dignity. For others, there is indeed struggle. And so, on to today's conversation. Julia, as a palliative care physician... Could you describe for the audience exactly what palliative care is and in as much detail as you would care to, to share? Palliative care is the relief of suffering and it's the care of people who have a known terminal diagnosis. So it's not about quantity of life, it's more about the quality of life that one is expected to have. And so the quality of life, sadly, dying has become a medical 
medicalized where people go into hospital and everything's about medicine. But in actual fact, dying happens to everybody without exception. And dying is a psychological, a social, a spiritual, and a physical. And probably medical is the last on the list. And yet in the Western world, we've flipped it because we think through medicine, we can achieve everything and we can keep life going. But in palliative care, we don't. We accept that the goal is, we accept death. And our goal is to make the quality of living until that time of death the best it possibly can be. It's quite interesting you there's two issues actually that are interesting for me. Firstly, Western, because I think that this is very much a Western phenomenon, but it may not be so. Paul may jump in. Um, and I think that the idea that, you know, medicine is the answer to, to, to everything and this idea that we're just going to ameliorate and maybe obviate uh, dying, which is not possible. And it's something which we all have to come to terms with and accept. And, I suppose it begs the question of how we live on a daily basis in terms of preparedness for death. Because for me, increasingly, I suppose I'm getting older myself and I'm thinking about precisely that. Because, you know, we speak about, or you spoke about quality, not quantity. And I think that that is within the context of a dying patient. But here's a question. Aren't we all dying each day? And shouldn't that be our philosophy as a fundamental approach to living? the quality as opposed to the quantity. So, Julie, I'm going to ask you just to address it because I'm picking up on things that you've said, and then I'll flip it to Paul. I absolutely do believe it, and I, I have a fundamental philosophy that how we live is how we die. Right. And, um, you know, the Dalai Lama visited the UK, and he said he came to learn about palliative care, and he left wondering why he'd come, because in his world there's a transition and we work towards uh, eternity and our service here is how we see we break through our cage and the bird flies to the next world and the western world doesn't believe that we become more secular and we we believe that what and we become more entitled uh we believe we shouldn't have suffering and we forget that actually the great faiths of the world are about service and living. Right. And those who serve and live, I've looked after over 50,000 people who have died. And if I reflect back on my experience of those that have died in a content, peaceful way, it's those that have served. They, they are the servants of the world. So how you live is without doubt how you die, and we should be living more with death in mind. Well, I think that, as I said, that is something which I've maybe because I'm getting older and I'm much more appreciative of each day as it is that I've begun to appreciate that one has to do that. And I think in doing that, because you never know, there is no guarantee of what happens the next minute. Anything can happen. And so are you living your life fully each moment? And I'm becoming myself personally increasingly drawn to more Eastern philosophy and more Buddhist philosophy and more living in the moment than I ever have been. And I'm not sure if that's a function of maturity or if it's just my personality and I'm that much more inclined. But I do seem to – and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to jump straight in now into something which I would wanted to leave to the end – I'm seeing an interesting phenomenon, the emergence of 
psychedelics and psilocybin everywhere. It's being kind of brought across as a panacea for everything from depression to anxiety to substance abuse to fear of dying. And I thought to myself, you know, where one thing becomes the cure for everything, there's a problem. And then I thought about it a bit more, and I thought, but what is the common pathway to the improved emotional well-being? And it seems it's the mystical experience. It's the spiritual. And I think to some extent, Julia, that's what you're kind of tapping into is that spiritual domain of human existence, which is so critical and so important to how we live our lives. Paul, what are your thoughts? Because I think that you've been listening patiently. Okay. Uh, I think that the, the basic problem is that human beings either ignore or deny that we are basically spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. Okay? That who we are, that, that makes us different from other animals because we have the capacity to think about our own death with the capacity to transcend the present limitations and to connect with nature, connect with God, and connect with our deeper self, our true self. So because we are cut off from our spiritual source, that's why most of the problems occur. Mm. See, in my mind, a happy life does not based on possessing things, having things. The basic healthy and happy life is based on becoming who are, we are meant to be. It's based on being and becoming, not possession. That is the wrong formula. You talk about a little madness. Actually, we have a madness of pursuing happiness. That's the madness. That's the madness that drives us crazy. Uh. We think only we have death, we have that, we'll be happy. But that's delusion. Things can never make us happy. Can, we will never satisfy. We always want more and more and more. But the right formula, it based on faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. Faith that tomorrow the sun rises. Faith is the storm, everything will pass. Faith in myself of becoming better and growing. Faith in other people that if I treat other people with sincerity, with kindness. Even though people are maybe maybe treat me, but I'm sure someone will reciprocate. Mm. I treat if I if I treat everybody with love, with kindness, I'm happier. You people wrong me, I say I, I, I forgive you. If you um, treat me badly, I treat you with love. That makes me feel good. So, Paul, some might argue that you're being very idealistic. because well, what... it's not idealistic. You know why? It's not idealistic right. because we know that we hold grudges, we hold, we hold resentment, we want to revenge, we want to 
encontrar a lot of people that make us miserable. On the other hand, I say, life is too short. Nothing is permanent. What can we all get along? Why wouldn't we treat each other nicely? But that works. Well, I, 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 I've been discriminated against because I'm, I'm Asian. Okay? Right. I've been discriminated against because I happen to believe in the Bible. Right. So I would attack for being unscientific, irrational. People attack me all they want. But I, I'm 85. I'm cancer. I still live a vital life. Right. Because my faith in God, faith in myself, and faith in other people, because I still have hope for a better life after my death. I still have hope today is a good day. Right. Tomorrow might be even better. I too have faith, hope, and love, and hope that I can improve myself every day. I know how to manage my pain better. Yes. I know how to improve my health. I, I think that people got it all wrong because they deny God, deny, have, deny, deny that suffering can be good for us. These two things is important for well-being. It's the opposite. The things that we hate most actually are the best for us. Mm. The things that are good for them actually ruin them. That's why wisdom comes in. That they don't have the enlightened understanding. They don't have the wisdom for living. So that's why I'm perpetual care for treating, working with my client. I allocate a kind of a spiritual, essential well-being that's different from physical well-being, economical well-being, this essential the spiritual, essential well-being is the total quality of life that's based on faith, hope, and love. Okay, so I think that, that it, yeah. So, so I think there's a very specific philosophy that you're espousing here, and I no, think I'm that not, I'm not. I'm not. Do you know why? I'm talking about universals. I'm advocating universal spiritual principles. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that work for East and West. Yeah. All over the world, down through the ages, faith has been a, a, a powerful survival mechanism. Yes. There's a lot of, in China, old China, we call that sky god. Sky god. Right. In, in our Aboriginal people, call that great spirit. It doesn't matter what you call it. There is a transcendental well-being, there's a higher power. That we can, in time, that's a creation. No, no, and I think, I think that even psychiatry, as a biomedical discipline, which espouses a biopsychosocial approach, is now incorporating the spiritual into that yeah, 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 approach yeah. because I think it's understood that people who are more self transcendent, people who can connect beyond themselves with that which is yeah, outside yeah, yeah, of yeah. them, tend to be happier, not because they pursue happiness but because they have a way of understanding who they are, where they fit in, yeah, yeah, and happiness exactly. is a consequence. And I think that's something which you were saying earlier, Paul, which is it's the pursuit of happiness that's the problem. We should live yeah, our yeah, lives yeah. in a certain way, and happiness will come to us. And I think that for me, it's that daily lived philosophy yeah, yeah, yeah. of how you go about your life, which ultimately prepares you better. 
potentially for death. And I think, Julia, that's what you had been saying in terms of people who had been in service. Um, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Tended to be more at peace with death. Well, I think their, their whole focus is not on, as Paul says, this materialism of gaining and gaining and gaining, because gaining materialism is an insatiable desire and you're never going to satiate it. Right. And, you know, I always train my junior doctors and say it's it's like a hungry ghost mm. with a nice long neck and this big hungry ghost is never satiated because they ca he can't eat enough through the long neck and when he doesn't get what he wants he spits fire and that is the image of materialism and people that uh, when they come to the end of their lives and particularly people that have been powerful and in control of their lives mm. life ultimately when they're dying they're no longer in control unless they have a connection to eternity or some existential belief that this is a part of living that goes on to something else. But if this is it, it's small wonder that life has become much more, uh, I'm entitled to this, I'm entitled to that, and I'm entitled to have no suffering. Right. And, you know, you saying things like psilocybin, obviously we haven't used psilocybin, but I've used other um, uh, psychedelics. And, I think that the, the, the idea of changing your mind mm. to cope with the situation is fine if there's a pathology in the situation. If you're depressed and you need an anti-serotonin, well, that right. has made sense. But if you are changing your mindset because of dying, isn't it better to cope with the process of dying? Because people believe they're terrified of dying, and yet that window of knowing, having worked in a cancer hospital yeah. and actually telling hundreds of thousands of people that they are terminally ill, you imagine that that's going to be a, a terrible thing, but it it opens a new window. It may, opens a window where an enormous amount of good in that window happens. You know you're going to die. There's lots of resolution. There's lots of reflection. There's lots of giving. There's lots of focus on the things that really matter. And so if you if you pretend that you're not going to die, you give people false hope. Whereas actually, if you're honest with people that are going to die and you tell them what to expect and how it's going to happen. I mean, going back to your opening statement of assisted dying, mm. I've had lots of people that have come in and said they wanted to, you know, to engage in assisted dying or they want to go to Dignitas. Mm. And will I let, you know, facilitate it? And I always say, well, I'll tell you when your last chance is to go to Dignitas. So you can make your own arrangements, but beyond this time, you may not be able to because you'll be too poorly. And in tw over 20 years of palliative care, not one has ever taken up the offer. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Believe. Yeah, I really believe that if people are in good care and that they've attended to their whole, the whole of themselves, no more is needed. And the problem with assisted suicide, it lets mediocrity come in and it, it punishes. It's very punitive to the very vulnerable who will feel the burden that 
they are to other people. Whereas in a really dignified society, the hallmark of a dignified society is to look after your die. Well, I think that is key. I think that's a very profound statement. But again, you know, you were talking about when somebody knows that they are dying, a window of opportunity opens up for all kinds of other things to, 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 to change. And so the question then becomes, why do we have to wait for that? Correct. So as much as this program is about assistance with dying, it's actually more about assistance with living because I think it's through the process of, of, of confronting your death that you start to grasp the metal of, hang on a sec, it's inevitable, it's going to happen, I don't know when, I don't know how, so along the way, what am I going to do and how am I going to live better? In which case… Dying is something which just happens, but you've had a good life along the way. Correct. Okay. I get it. Paul? Okay. You know, earlier I say the pursuit pursuit of happiness is a madness. Well, the happiness creates. Also, to avoid suffering is also madness. Right. But trying to uh, actually... A major source of our misery is because we try to avoid the painful reality. When we want to escape reality through addiction, through distraction, we actually create a worse hell for ourselves. So that's why I talk about meaningful suffering. Meaningful suffering is part of the component of a meaningful life. Let me explain to you why meaningful suffering is so important for our well-being for old and young and any time. First of all, suffering is God's microphone speaking to our ears that, look, there's something wrong with your life. That's why you're miserable. There's something out of balance in your life. That's why you are happy. You need change. You need to change your attitude, change your way of life, change your mindset. So suffering is an opportunity for part to change. So therefore, the first thing, uh, a kind of Eastern philosophy, we need to have an enlightened awareness that my life is broken. My life is in a mess. I need to become whole. I need to put in order. So that, that's the first, the first good thing for, for suffering is that it wakes us up. Suffering wakes us up. The second thing important about suffering is that it not op- not only wakes us up to examine ourselves and to become aware of the change we need to make, but also how to illuminate the depths of human experience. Help to explore the mysteries, the wonders of the world. The new psychiatry 
which is very different actually. And, and, and listening to you talk about how you speak to your junior doctors and your trainees, it sounds to me like there's a very philosophical, um, insight that's required in order to actually be a palliative care physician. Would you concur or? Would you know, you know, Chris, many times you will go on a ward round and, uh, your juniors have been struggling to control pain. Right. And you sit down with a patient and you talk about their physical issues, obviously. You look at their scans, obviously. You you talk through what's really causing their pain and you can lift their pain barrier significantly just through discussion mm. and gaining a peaceful acceptance and very often I can leave the ward round and I haven't even changed the medication right and people I know there's a placebo effect of course there's a placebo effect but I think when you've been looking after dying people for a long time you you realize that much of their pain has got nothing to do with the physical parts of the pain hmm. and it, it was very much brought to me many years ago I almost learned the lesson when I went out to work on Mother Teresa's hospice in Calcutta mm-hmm. and in the early evenings we would go around in a wagon and we would collect all the people who were dying on the roads and she would bring them in and we would clean them and we would lay them on these grass mats on very cold concrete floors and we had no medicines and we had nothing else. Hmm. And yet suddenly this peace came to these people who very often died in the night or died the next day. But I remember thinking all they've had is someone to care for them, someone to clean them, someone to restore their dignity. They've had nothing in terms of medication. And yet that was a gift of giving them a good death. And so I know that's a very extreme way of looking at dying. But I came back to this country thinking, you know, that's what we need to give our dying people. We need to give them an avenue to release their pain, an avenue to to choose what they wish to have and what they don't wish to have, put them in control of the last part of their journey on this earth. And once they are in control and they know that when they call for help, they get just the help they need, not other help, you get a calmness. Mm. And that's why I've spent a lot of time creating digital plans for patients because I think if patients are in control of what they really want, what they feel, what to do with them, how to treat them, and they take control of their last journey, Mm. and then we're just on the sideline, the professionals, but that plan needs to be connected to us so we know. And that we've shown completely transforms how people die. So just confirm for me, when we talk about a digital plan, what exactly are we talking about? Okay, so digital plan in England, we let the patients make their choices. We put in their diagnosis, their medications, allergies, the normal things for a plan. But then the patient decides who they wish to be with when they die. What would they like when they die? Do they want a priest? Do they want a rabbi? Do they want an imam? What to do with their dog? How to gain access to their home? Uh What brings them peace? What 
And every single plan is completely different. And then they choose, do I want to be resuscitated? Do I want to have feeding tubes? And the whole plan is built up. And then the plan is approved by a doctor or a nurse because then it becomes a clinical plan. And then digitally, we connect those plans to the ambulance service, the out-of-hours call services. So when they then call 999 in this country for an ambulance, it pops up on the ambulance screen in their vehicles and it says, this patient is dying and this is what they need and this is what they want. And so please respect their needs and wishes. And it completely transforms how people die. Just data-wise, in this country, 47% of people die in hospital. And that went down a bit in COVID to 43%. But if you have a plan, only 21% of people will die in hospital. Which I think is preferable. Well over 95% of people say they want to die. They do not wish to die in hospital. So it's definitely preferable. So, I mean, what's really fascinating is looking at these two extremes. Because on the one hand, you've got Calcutta. And on the other hand, you've got the UK. So in Calcutta, it's more about the, the kind of immediate human contact, which right. I think is, is critical. It's, that, it's not that you establish a meaningful relationship, but you make contact, which establishes some kind of relationship, which seems to bring peace. Here in the kind of ultra-urbanized Western environment. We do it kind of digitally in a sense where you're kind of acknowledging the patient's needs, you're giving them responsibility, you're giving them control, and you're providing and facilitating that for them. And you seem to be getting a similar result with very different approaches in very different cultures. That's it. You know, so it's, 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 it's interesting to me how diverse, but does that not work in terms of what you do in Calcutta, that human contact, the relationships, are those in themselves not the thing? Because we've had an earlier podcast looking at psychotherapy and all the different techniques and all the different schools. But what it seems to come down to is not so much the technique as the relationship between the caregiver and the care receiver. And you seem to be talking, certainly within the Indian context with Mother Teresa, it's about contact and a relationship. And in a sense, in the digital situation, that's exactly what you're talking about as well. It's about relationships. Well, it, it is because essentially what you're doing is you're speeding up the journey of being a stranger. Because if right, and you 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 are bringing to that patient very quickly a person they've never met, they know nothing about, and suddenly the person's up to speed with their very profound needs, their most important needs to them. And so suddenly you call the ambulance service and and a stranger doesn't come. Someone who really knows a good deal about you and your wishes, your personal wishes. So you're speeding up the journey of becoming a friend, becoming a carer, becoming a professional uh, by sharing the details digitally. So, Paul, what are your thoughts on on everything Julia has been saying and how I've understood it? So my understanding is that people, regardless of which culture, deep down, they all have the same needs. Okay, they all have some, deep, deep down, we're all the same. Okay? Mm-hmm. But we express and experience life differently because of our culture. Okay? The, the basic need is that, especially as when we are dying, we want to feel at peace 
with ourselves. We want to feel at peace with people, our loved ones, and we all want, want to feel, feel at peace with our maker. Now, that is one patient, one, one dying patient, that is real case, complain about stomach pain, whatever pain. All kinds of medica- medication did not remove the pain. Mm. So one day, the psychologist asked, asked, asked her, is there anything I can do for you to relieve your pain? So now, now here, the psychologist asked a, pa- asked a patient, palliative care patient, what she wants. Mm. She said, I cannot die without seeing my estranged daughter. I haven't seen her for 20 years. So that is sort of pain. That is psychosomatic. That, that pain about regret of being alienated with a daughter, the pain of not seeing her only daughter, that psychological pain is transformed to some physical pain. Actually, she has a psychological pain of being separated from daughter. So the moment the psychologist is able to track down her, her daughter and connect with her, her pain is gone. Mm. And, and, and she died happy. See, for example. Yeah. So, so I also in my, in my life review, research with seniors, with dying people. So life review is important because life review gives them an opportunity to to make amends and to resolve the issues that trouble them. So one a- a- area is that we all have made mistakes. And they cannot forgive themselves. Sure. So one of the special ministries says that that's why Christianity has a unique contribution is that if you cannot forgive yourself, God can forgive you. God, God has taken your punishment and, and he can forgive you. So the idea that even if they cannot forgive themselves, that God can forgive them, accept them, oh, that is a relief. Okay. So, on your deathbed, you, you think about your life go be, right before your eyes. You, you know what kind of horrible person you have been, how you have mistreated your children, your family, in pursuit of fame and power. That's, that's the story about the death of Ivan. Uh, first one, book story. So what, what people realize that they have been bad person in their life. So the chance for, for us for forgiveness from people, the chance, the time for change, it's never too late to change. I want to be kinder to people. I want to be a better person. I want to go back to the God of my parents. I want to go back to my traditional, my, the face of my tradition and culture. Return to their faith. Return to the loved ones. 
accept yourself. So ultimately, we want to be at peace with ourselves, at peace with our family, at peace with our maker. So then I, we're ready to die. So I think that the the issue of peace comes through very strongly in 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 what you're saying. But also this issue of pain. Julia, you were talking earlier about, about pain and about physical pain and about relief of pain and, and, and how it doesn't necessarily require change in medication, but it maybe requires a shift in how one understands where one is at and what is happening and, and, and what other things one might do that need to be done in terms of what Paul is saying. Oh, there's no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt. I mean, and, and the, uh, it's it's knowing that you're in that last phase of life that gives big freedom. You know, it, it gives you all sorts of possibilities. And even if you've got a cancer diagnosis and it's you know it's metastasized and you know, you know, you're deteriorating, it's not until you're told you're dying that that window opens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I'll never forget, into, we did a project on homeless and how they perceived dying. Homelessness. The homeless. And the homeless. Yeah, yes. right. And um, I interviewed this chap under Waterloo Bridge and in his little tent and asked him what he'd like when he was going to die and he, would he like a digital plan? And he was absolutely up for it. And I said, why? And he said, because when I am really going to die, um, I'd like someone to call my family in Ireland and tell them I'm dying so they know I'm not going to disappoint them again. And I'm not going to cause them any more grief again. And I'd like to go to a hospice where it's it's okay and they're safe to come and visit me because I'd really like to say goodbye to them and make my peace with them before I die. And that's exactly what he put in his plan. Please call here. Here are the contact numbers. This is the hospice I want to die in. This is what I, I, I want to do. And I think and when I left, I got up to go. As my creaky old bones got up, up <laughs> out of his tent, and I said to him, "Is there anything else?" And he absolutely beamed at me, and he said, "I just feel." He said, "You know, I've got lung cancer." He said, "But I feel fantastic now. I know I've got a plan." And there was no difference to his disease going into his tent and coming out of his tent. But it it's about knowing that in that precious time you will gain your peace and i think that peace gives you a gentle transition mm. um uh, and a, a better quality of life on your way towards the inevitable absolutely right because you know then that even i don't know what happened to him of yeah. course i don't know what happened to him but he got a plan and god willing he he got what he asked for yes but he, even the knowledge that he had expressed what he wanted and there was a hope that that would happen. What was, was a good step towards a, a peaceful resolution? Well, I think that it's the same with life in general. Often you have uncertainty, but as soon as you formulate a clear understanding of what the problem is, what needs to be done, what you're going to do about it, and you have a plan, things yes. kind of settle and you mm-hmm. have a sense of control and then mm-hmm. you can almost park it and carry on with the rest of your life and live it as you would like to and as yes. you should. So that's, so I, I wanted to ask something a little bit more direct about palliative care. 
I mean, it's obviously a very specific. I mean, if, every every medical discipline attracts different types of people. Um, palliative care obviously attracts must attract a very certain type of individual like yourself who is comfortable with dealing with these things and not feeling necessarily overwhelmed because we speak a lot about burnout and about the struggles, um, about disillusionment and, you know, lack of empathy and, and loss of energy as part of burnout. I mean, to what extent is that a, is that a, a, a reality in, in, in palliative medicine, in palliative care or for palliative care physicians? Paul, do you want do you, to start? Well, Paul can start. I don't know if Paul. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a pinnacle physician. <laughs> you know, look, I think that the Mother Teresa got it right. People ask her, what's her greatest happiness? She said her greatest happiness is able to be holding the hand of a dying person and help the person die in peace. That's her happiness. Mm-hmm. For me, happiness, my happiness is to bring happiness and meaning to other people. Right. Uh, so, life is hard. Especially the last journey, I, I, I saw, I did a lot of research on, on death attitude. People are horrified about the idea that with all the accounts, Accomplishment with, with this resume running through hundreds of pages. One moment, they're gone. Mm. They are become dust. The idea that such a beautiful, rich life can become dust is it, something they cannot accept or they cannot understand. So, as a psychologist, I'm Dealing with people every day, struggling with not only everyday problems, but dealing with existential issues mm. about suffering, about death and dying. So, therefore, to, to help people, you know, in the last stretch of their life, in the last lack of life, able to help them to, to be at peace with themselves, to accept death and to die in peace and with joy and peace. Uh, that to me is give me good satisfaction. Right. But you know you to help people. But you're talking with, about with the last journey. But you're talking last journey a peaceful way. But you're talking about something which evokes in me one word humility. We need to be humble to accept yeah what we are going to be in the future, yeah. notwithstanding everything we've been. The money, if you're an yeah. academic, the number it's, of publications, it, yeah, it, it means nothing. Yeah. It all comes to humility, nothing, ultimately. Humility and compassion. Right. And compassion for people. Not just me, me, me. But when you really care about people, then paradoxically, when, when you forget about yourself and care for other people, you have more joy. I think that's the that's the uh, message that's coming through very strongly, and and I think in in various other podcast episodes, I've I've sort of looked at the issue of going deeper within, but also reaching further out. Yeah, so yeah, it's a yeah, kind of a exactly. bi-directional uh, uh, exactly, journey exactly. in and out. Julia, I I think what Paul was talking about, or an, another 
image that came to me or, or thought that came to me is that this this form of caring has to be some kind of a calling where you are actually you actually don't find yourself overwhelmed by it but you actually embrace what you're able to offer and what you're able to give to people at a certain point in their life um when they are maybe most vulnerable and um looking at the end of their lives would you say i, I you know i think that there there are different people that are attracted to palliative care i've known a lot of atheists Right. I was wondering about that because, I mean, we talk a lot about spirituality and I wonder how many people have a, I mean, there's that expression, they had a come to Jesus moment and it's not necessarily about religion, but uh, how many people experience that having been atheists on their deathbed? I don't know what your experience has been, but as you say. Well, I, I think uh, I, um, wh- when I first joined uh, became a, consul- a junior consultant. Yeah. The head of the department was an atheist. Right. And I found it very interesting because she was an academic, a right. researcher, and um, she was an atheist. And I remember her saying one day, there are certain questions I can't ask because I can't engage with those people at that level. Mm. So I don't necessarily think – I think people who go into palliative care – are able to expand to incorporate a lot of pain, suffering, and misery. And uh, they don't live superficially. Um, There's that group. There are those that it is purely vocational. And I've worked with uh, countless people that have a calling to this kind Mm. of care and are extremely good at it. And then there are the researchers and and those that uh, want to improve things through research and evidence base. Mm. And then there are other people that are just plain simply pragmatic. It's a very good quality of life. And, you know, um, maybe the risks or the perceived risks of caring for the dying are lower. Right. And so there are multiple reasons why people go into palliative care. Do you work uh, in a multidisciplinary team? I mean, psychiatry always prides itself on being like the multidisciplinary team, but do you work with psychiatrists and psychologists, obviously? We do. Psychiatrists, psychologists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, um, uh, nurse consultants. Uh, We work with a whole team of people and then once a week just talk through the patient and decide who's best to be the key worker and look after that patient. But they do see a doctor or nurse. Every, uh, they see a nurse every day yes, and a doctor every day, but uh, they're different levels that uh, they they see every day. But it's you can't do palliative medicine in isolation. It's just not possible. So here's and of a, course, we have a vicar. Oh, right. Uh, um, there's a, ch- a hospital chaplain. Right. And the hospital chaplain will arrange for the imam or the rabbi or the priest or whoever is required to come. So, final question to you, because I, and I'll ask the same one to Paul, but I think he's kind of answered it. What for you is the most satisfying? And it may sound strange that I'm asking what is satisfying in terms of palliative care as a palliative care physician when you're dealing with dying, but what is for you, you know? The most satisfying aspect of your of your work. My whole life. No, no, sorry. Julia. No, Julia first, and then Paul. My whole life is my faith. Right. And so it's 
uh, I have no fear of dying. For me, my journey in this life is a passage to eternity. And so if I can share that with people, I don't necessarily share it unless they ask. Right. But if they do ask and I can make their passage to a place where I perceive is exactly where, you know, the nirvana, it's it's where we're, we're all striving to get to. Right. And if along the way I can give that to patients and physically through skills of medicine help them and emotionally and spiritually help them to be in guided to that last journey, it's enormously satisfying. Right. Paul? Yeah. I I grew up under Japanese occupation. I, I grew up in wartime and the civil war. I've seen a lot of suffering. In Canada, life is relatively peaceful and comfortable, but I also see a lot of suffering. Yes. Self-inflicted suffering. Mm-hmm. I see suffering at East and West, poor and rich, that our life is so short. Why spend your life causing pain to yourself, causing pain to other people? That's not how, that's not how we're supposed to live. Right. So, so my mission and my joy is to wake people up. Say, look, you're destroying yourself. You're talking yourself. There is a better way, a better way of going deeper by accepting suffering and sinking your root deeper so that you can grow taller when you can reach the higher heaven when you reach the deepest hell. So I encourage people to accept suffering and turn suffering into meaningful for personal growth, right. suffering can make them, suffering can either make you bitter or better. So make, make suffering work for you. Don't waste your suffering. I think that's a very profound observation. Make suffering work for you. And I like the analogy almost like of a tree. You mm-hmm. dig deeper in with roots, you grow higher up you and you flourish. Yes. So, Julia. So the second thing, yeah. Yeah. The second thing is that when you reach higher, the higher go, the more mysterious get. It misses them. Okay. You have to be able to accept some element of mysticism in your life. Yes. We cannot live. Mere rationality can drive you crazy. Well, I th- everything can make sense rationally. Well, I think there I'm. There's of room for mysticism and wonder, the wonder, the mystery of life. I'm hearing that mysticism, mystery, all adds to the value. Julia and Paul, it's been a very philosophical, spiritual discussion, which I've really enjoyed. I hadn't anticipated exactly how it was going to go, but I've certainly enjoyed it. And I want to thank you both for your time and and, and sharing of your knowledge, expertise, perspectives. Uh, You know, dealing as we have with a very difficult subject, that of dying, but specifically dying with dignity and in peace. And so in closing, I'm going to quote from Tolstoy, Tolstoy's War and Peace, a comment on death where he said, Man cannot possess anything as long as he fears death, but to him who does not fear it, everything belongs.
So, remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities for one pharmacy at a time.